Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Brian Strasberger. And I'm Joe Noya. We're with Del Camino Jesuit Border Ministries, located in the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. This podcast aims to humanize the migrant experience by sharing stories from our ministry and highlighting some of the amazing work that people are doing along the border and throughout the country. The Jesuit Border Podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Let's begin. Vamos! In this episode, we're going to talk about wounds. We will be interviewing Deacon Luis Zuniga, who is the director of the San Juan Diego Lay Ministry Institute here in the Diocese of Brownsville, and also a deacon serving at the Immaculate Conception Cathedral, which recently opened a shelter for migrants, a a respite center during the day. So stay tuned for that interview, but first, we'll talk a little bit about wounds that we see and experience and encounter in migrants in our ministry on a regular basis. Yeah, it's course, not a terribly happy topic. It's a serious one, but one we got we to gotta talk about. We got to name and get those stories out there because they're important. And I remember this one moment uh, helping out behind the medicine counter at the HRC, the main shelter in McAllen, and a woman from Venezuela comes up to the counter asking for some information about how she can get to her next location and be reunited with her family, which in this case for her is especially important because Crossing the Darien into Central America was a horrible kind of inferno for her, but even that paled in comparison to the horrible mistreatment she received in Mexico at the hands of the cartel and even some members of the, uh, the, the Mexican National Guard. That's right. The journey, the migrant journey is one that's fraught with difficulty. I mean, a lot of people are leaving, fleeing situations of violence and threats and then have to make these very difficult journeys. The Darien Gap is this inhospitable jungle between South America and Central America that people have to journey through over a couple of days because there's no road that takes you through it. And and for a while, we just heard so many horror stories of that, but it's been so striking recently, just as this woman is a good example of it, uh, of people who say, you know, the Darien Gap was really difficult, but the biggest challenges and the worst treatment and the hardest part of my entire journey was traversing Mexico. Exactly. And this was a woman who had been physically, psychologically, and spiritually wounded. And all I could do was hold her hand and listen to her. And when she finished telling her story, you know, I could see the lines in the other room at the HRC where you and Flavio were offering blessings to anyone who wanted one. It's a typical thing that we do when we go to celebrate Mass in the shelters is uh, invite people up to come up for a special blessing just to give them some sense of grace and peace and God's work in their lives. Uh, It's it's something that can take a very simple form, but obviously, as we know, can have a very powerful meaning. And so that's why it's always been kind of an important part of our liturgical celebrations in the shelters. And I asked this, uh, this woman when the last time she had received a blessing was, and she couldn't say. So we walked over to the line, and with tears streaming from her face, she received a blessing from you, and then came over to me with a smile. And I'm noticing a little bit of a, a change in her. The pain's still there, though. And there's, I feel like there's like a lesson for all of us in this, that we can't erase another's wounds. We can't just make their pain go away, but we can still help that person feel seen and heard 
and help that person realize that in the midst of your suffering, God is still here, compassionately blessing you, and you are not alone. You have not been abandoned. It's a moment like that when you hear a story like that, that you just, you feel helpless. I mean, in a situation like that, you're working the hygiene counter, you're handing out, you know, Advil and diapers, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's nothing behind that counter that's going to heal this this woman from the wounds that she's carrying. Uh and, and, you know, giving a blessing to someone isn't like waving a magic wand over them either, right? But uh, we have to know, even in our frailty, in uh, the lack of resources that we have, that it is important to see someone wounded and to give them space and to hear their story, maybe to offer an encouraging word or just a good presence. And in the end, we trust, and this is why maybe the blessing felt so meaningful to her, we trust the grace of God to do some of that important work to provide some consolation, some healing in the midst of so much pain. It's not easy, but it's something that in experiences of ministry where you're encountering people who have suffered great trauma, that you can't, we can't, we can't allow ourselves to be completely discouraged and say, because we can't completely heal this person, there's nothing that we can do. You know, we still have to be a stable presence and trust in God's work and mercy and grace uh, along with, frankly, a lot of more resources that they're going to need in the days, weeks, and months ahead. And there's some consolation in that, in knowing that these are people that we feel for, that we have a kind of compassion for, and we trust and we know through faith that we can't out-compassion God. That's right. And as much as we feel compassion for these, it is nothing compared to the compassion that God feels for them, and that gives us reason to hope. That's right. And, you know, we are moved in our ministry by the compassion God has for us and extending that compassion to others. Another important part of our ministry down here on the border is helping pregnant women uh, who are in northern Mexico and who, you know, they aren't necessarily physically wounded, if we're talking about wounds, but we know that pregnancy is a delicate situation for their health and the health of their children, their unborn babies. And so we're trying to get them access to adequate prenatal and birthing care in the U.S. instead of if you can imagine, like going into labor in the ground of some tent in northern Mexico. I mean, how distressing that would be and how much uh, of a medically sensitive situation that would immediately become. And so we try to do some work to, to minister and help, help these women uh, and get access to adequate prenatal and birthing care in the U.S., just a week or two ago, I got an urgent phone call from one of the directors of a shelter in Reynosa. One of the pregnant women, Michelle, was suffering from eclampsia, is what I was told. Well, some of our listeners might know exactly what that means, but I'm not a medic. I've never been pregnant. I've never had a partner who's pregnant, and so I, I didn't really know what that meant, but it sounded bad. This is the first time I'm hearing the word. <laughs> Thankfully... As I got this call, I was standing right next to a midwife friend of mine uh, in a different shelter, and we were having a conversation. So I said, hey, uh, this is what I'm hearing. This woman might have eclampsia. And she says, what? I mean, is she in convulsions, right? We need to get this woman to a hospital. This is a life or death situation. I'm like, I don't know. So I hand over the phone to her, and they talk and, and get things sorted. And I'm I'm very happy to report <laughs> that it was not eclampsia. But through their conversation, the midwife and the director of the shelter, they came to the clear realization that this was a high-risk pregnancy, and it uh, she needed some access to proper medical care as soon as possible. So I started reaching out to the woman, Michelle, over WhatsApp, found out that she's traveling with her two kids of her own, also her mother, 
And then her sister, who also has two kids. So it was a group of seven, three women and four children traveling together from southern Mexico, fleeing a situation of real uh, violence down there and very concerned for their safety, uh, but also the safety of their children, and then in a special way for Michelle uh, and her pregnancy. Well, I told Michelle that we could help her and her two kids to come into the U.S. and get the medical attention that they needed as soon as possible, but we were not able to help her mom and sister and nieces. They would have to wait for a CBP-1 appointment, which is something that most of the migrants are having to do in northern Mexico right now. There's just one problem with that. This group of seven was sharing one single cell phone. It's not an uncommon thing that we see, but cell phones, of course, are essential. It's the way you request an appointment with the CBP-1 app. And so they were nervous, as I told Michelle, that we could help her and get her and her children access in the United States. They were understandably nervous about separating and then being unable to communicate with another. And there was some question of, would they be able to get in if they have an appointment with CBP-1, but they don't have the phone? I mean, it just got very complicated, and we realized the big issue was that they just needed another phone. I was in this conversation texting with her, thinking, gosh, we need to get her across tomorrow, but we also need a cell phone. How are we going to put all these pieces together? When it occurred to me, just that day, earlier that day, we were in Reynosa, and I went to purchase some cell phones from a a, a wonderful donation we had gotten from a supporter in in New York City uh, who had given us a gift to get cell phones for exactly this kind of a situation. We just bought them for Casa de Migrante, another shelter that we visit in Reynosa, for them to be able to use with people who didn't have appointments uh, to get it on their phone. So the good, I mean, the good thing for this family was, was that the mother and uh, other sister and their kids had the CBP-1 appointment for a week later, but the phone was the situation. And so thankfully, I, you know, I get on the phone and I, I talk to one of the sisters, Daughters of Charity, Sor Carmen, at Casa de Migrante, explain the whole situation, the urgency of this cell phone, and she responds immediately and says, no problem, no problem, Father Brian, we'll get it over there. So grabs one of the cell phones, gets over to the shelter, is able to get it to Michelle, and within, uh, within less than 24 hours, she had a cell phone set up. She was in the United States to get adequate medical attention. You know, it's an experience, I think, that she'll never forget uh, as she soon enough welcomes this child into the world. And it's one that I won't forget either because there's something about these stories, these moments of woundedness, of need, that even as they heal, those, some part of that still remains with us. And so I think... Her pregnancy in this fragile situation, fleeing violence from her hometown, waiting in a pretty desperate situation with an under-resourced shelter in northern Mexico, even the scarcity of resources before her, her, like the cell phone that was so desperately needed, that that sense of scarcity, that feeling of woundedness, that's going to remain with her and and continue to mark her. It's going to be something I think she'll remember. I think it's something that she'll, it's a story she'll be telling to her child when her child grows up, right? Because the wounds, even as they heal, remain with us. Absolutely. And so we have a great interview coming up for you where we talk a little bit about that woundedness with Deacon Luis Zuniga, Director of Lay Ministry here in Brownsville, and also a deacon at the Immaculate Conception Cathedral. So Stay tuned for that interview uh, coming up next.
We are pleased to welcome to today's episode Deacon Luis Suniga. Luis is a direct, the director of the San Juan Diego Lay Ministry Institute here in the Diocese of Brownsville, which offers lay ministry formation and continuing education for lay leadership in the diocese. Welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. Thank you, Father Brian. Thank you for the invite. Of course. It's great to have you with us. I'm wondering if you could start us off just by giving us a little bit of your background as someone who grew up right here in the Valley. Uh, well, I was born in San Juan, uh, Texas, here in in the Rio Grande Valley, and but grew up in McAllen. So I uh, graduated from uh, uh, Mackay, a proud bulldog of Mackay in 1983, uh, and then went to uh, what was known as uh, Pan American University, uh, or college, I think, back then, until now it's what we know now as the uh, UTRGB and, and part of Brownsville. And I, I went to school, uh, did some uh, religious studies uh, for some summers at Incarnate Word College, uh, which is now the University of the Incarnate Word. It's a huge uh, university now. And, uh, and did some summers there and, and um, uh, then became a youth minister in, at St. Joseph the Worker, my home parish in McAllen. Um, did uh, maybe about four years of youth ministry, then became certified as the director of, of religious set there at my home parish. So that's where I started, and then uh, in 89, I moved to Brownsville uh, because of a friend of mine, Father Amador Garza, and uh, he's the reason why I ended up in Brownsville, and I wasn't thinking I was going to be in Brownsville uh, this long, but I, I've been here since 89, and I've always believed that if, uh, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> you talk about God having plans and, uh, yeah. and us having cute plans that God <laughs> yeah. probably will just... Yeah. Disregard in favor of his own. I think of uh, my father. My father's a permanent deacon. Oh, okay. And I don't think that was anything that he had anticipated. It's just this sense of call and people kind of inviting him to maybe consider sure. becoming a deacon. And I'm wondering what that was like for you, because you have this this background of youth ministry, mm-hmm. other kinds of lay ministry. Mm-hmm. What was it that drew you mm-hmm. to the diaconate? Well, I'm, I'm a twin. Uh, my twin brother is a priest, uh, Father Carlos. And uh, we both grew up um, in our home parish as altar boys. We were altar boys for about 10 years, maybe 12. I think we were still uh, like sophomores in, in college and we were still serving, you know, and then helped like as coordinators. But there was always a, a, a calling. There was always uh, like an urging, like the Lord, you know, calling and and really, everybody uh, that that knew us when we were like teenagers, everybody thought that Deacon Luis was going to be the priest, and Father Carlos was, you know. So, um, but it, as I said, you know, uh, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Father Carlos became uh, the priest, and I ended up uh, getting married, and uh, and I feel very blessed that that I can serve the church as a deacon, but I'm also a husband and a dad. My goodness, I think we could say your parents did something right, you know. <laughs> you got twin brothers, and one becomes a yeah. priest, and one, uh, you know, works for the church and becomes yeah. a deacon. I was well. raised by my my mom and and my grandmother. I really never knew my dad, mm, is that right? and so they were both uh, very devout uh, Catholics. So uh, two two great women who I consider, uh, you know, my my first catechist and and if anything, my my first theologians, because there was a lot of teachings. 
theologians come in all shapes and sizes and forms. I, I've certainly found in my ministry here the way that migrants become theologians to me, that, that teach me about God and, uh, and, and reveal God's face to me in different ways, but, but really even just like real instruction about what faith really means. So I'm wondering if you have experience growing up or otherwise or times where, uh, where, where you've encountered the migrant as, or a migrant as a theologian who's really taught you about life and faith. Well, uh, one experience that I can tell you is, uh, you know, back in the, in the uh, when, when I was, uh, I think I must have been like a sophomore or a junior uh, in the 80s, um, we had a neighbor that, that uh, um, took in a, a young man, I think he was 18 or 19, from El Salvador. I, I always remember his name, Agustin. I don't, I don't remember his last name anymore, but he was a remarkable young man uh, who, uh, whom my mom would, would invite for dinner um, because, you know, he lived there. Uh, it, it was some, I think it was like an electric company or something. And uh, he gave him a job, the, 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 our neighbor. But I remember meeting Agustin and, and him telling us the struggle of, of uh, why he ended up in the U.S. And, and, and how he crossed illegally. I mean, he, that, that was, you know, the truth is that he was here illegally. But, but uh, the struggle in El Salvador in the 80s um, uh, was uh, uh, very painful because they were, you know, running from so much violence. And then... And then, of course, being involved in the church, uh, Bishop Fitzpatrick uh, uh, asked all the parishes to open their parish halls, so that the, so that we could, you know, house the the uh, the people from El Salvador. You certainly wear many hats, and part of that is working at the diocese, but part of that is also working at Immaculate Conception Cathedral in downtown Brownsville. Mm -hmm. And there's been some new developments there in the past few months because uh, the school building next to it has a gymnasium, the old school building, and that gymnasium, in response to needs, has been converted into a respite center for migrants. So I wondered if you could uh, share the the story about the origin of using that space and how it's being put into use uh, today. So it started uh, back in uh, in December of 2022, and uh, it was really in response to what we were seeing in the streets. And uh, Father Nick uh, Harding, OMI, uh, Oblate of Mary Immaculate, uh, who was the interim uh, rector at the time. And I remember, I think it was like December 22nd, 23rd. Uh, I don't know if you all, re- I don't know if you remember. It was very cold. It was one of the coldest Decembers we've had here in, in, the, in the Rio Grande Valley. And uh, uh, what we noticed were, uh, Father Nick noticed uh, several preg- pregnant women, you know. And, and so the bus station, which is across uh, the street from the cathedral, well, they closed at 10. And so we were noticing people in, in the streets. And so what, what started uh, was that you know, uh, Father Nick took the initiative of with consulting with the uh, bishop, uh, uh, Flores. We opened the gym, uh, but then we started noticing people, you know, were, were finding their way. They spread the word, you know, that. And so we were, uh, back then, we were relying on, on volunteers. We, we didn't have any, any mats. We didn't have, uh, you know, the, the support that we have now uh, from, from Sister Norma. So we were relying on, on the ministries, uh, on the, the people 
from Immaculate Conception. And right away, you know, people started donating children's clothes and, and diapers. And, and we had restaurants that were, you know, donating a little bit of food and, and people were cooking, you know, for them. And, and so th this was a, a response to Father Nick and I always have, uh, you know, we, we remind the families, the immigrant families, that it's a response to, to Matthew 25. You know, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty. And you, so it, now we, we also had a lot of criticism from some people and, and parishioners that, you know, like, you know, what are we doing or, or, or you know, are we harboring, you know, illegals? But, but a lot of people don't, don't understand that th these are, are, are people that, that all they have left is their dignity, you know, uh, they, they, they don't have a dollar to their name. And, and, and so it's, it's the right thing to do. It's, it's the gospel. It's, it's the, the answering, you know, the gospel. It's, it's what Jesus reminds us about who is my neighbor, as I mentioned. This desire mm -hmm. that so many people have to share their stories, these things that are so intimate to them and sometimes so traumatic. I think of especially the stories of kidnappings and yeah. that right now kidnapping is something that is so ubiquitous yeah. and so many people have these experiences of kidnapping and yet there is something that is so unique about each individual mm -hmm. case of kidnapping because this is their story of kidnapping and they want to share it. They want to be seen. Mm -hmm. And you have these, this dynamic of people fleeing violence from their home country, say Venezuela, encountering violence on their way to the border, encountering violence at the border, mm -hmm. and then crossing. Right. And it feels as if your job and your ministry is kind of a breaking that cycle of violence. Now you're arriving somewhere, mm -hmm. and you're not going to be met with violence. Sure. And, and, and it's very true what you're saying, that the, uh, the reason why they end up here at the cathedral is because they feel safe, and they want to be heard. They want someone, and they appreciate, and they know when you're listening to them. And, and likewise, I, I can tell when someone is speaking from their heart, you can see it in their eyes, and their eyes get watery, and they get emotional. But, but you can tell when, when, when someone is, is telling you what's, what's in their heart and what, what is painful to them about what they, what they have lived. Um, and, 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 and you feel you, you want to do you know, more for them. And, and, and we pray. Father, Father Nick and I have always prayed you know, with them uh, for them to, to heal, uh, for them to heal because it's, I've always believed, uh, uh, and my grandma would talk about this in Aditya also, about you cannot put a Band-Aid where you need stitches. You know, the wound is there. Uh, and I always tell people, because some people will ask, I remember one of the questions in lay ministry is, you know, if, if, the, if the risen Lord, the glorified Lord, you know, resurrected, why, why do we still see his wounds? And, and that's, uh, you know, when we explain, you know, that, that yes, the glorified Lord, you know, we can still see his wounds because they're, they're uh, uh, evidence of the suffering, you know, for us. And, and by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah reminds us, the prophet. And, and so we kind of apply here the same, that, that people need to heal. And, and we talk to them about, about you know, healing and, 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 and letting go. And, and we tell them, now, now you're here, take the opportunity 
of, of, uh, of being here already. And what a blessing that you made it. What a blessing. And God has been with you. And a lot of them will tell you, uh, you know, that, that they're here by the grace of God uh, uh, in their own words. And if not, we remind them, you're here by, by the grace of God. Encountered a, uh, a woman in McAllen mm-hmm. who used the, the phrase, Dios fue mi coyote. Okay. This yeah. attitude of yeah. God being with you yeah. and guiding you the whole yeah. time. The one who crossed you, the one who, who led you. Yeah, that's beautiful. You talked about the resurrected Christ having, having his wounds. Mm-hmm. I think that's it's such an important image in our faith to see the wounded Christ resurrected, that sense of both carrying the, the wounds, but also moving into new life. Because right. I think that's, right. that's something that speaks to us and our lived experience, because we have our scars, we have our wounds, and we, you know, we also have the hope for something better, right? right. For, some, right. For, for new life shared with Christ. And so I think migrants are often such a strong sign of that for me, because sometimes their wounds can be so so visible, so transparent yes. because yes. of their vulnerability. Yes. I wonder if there's any uh, story that comes to your mind specifically that you think of when you think about uh, a, a migrant bearing those wounds and, and searching for new life. Uh, indeed, we've had uh, uh, you know young men that come uh, because of the that that wire, the barbed uh, wire, the barbed wire, um, and in Spanish they call them the pulgas, you know, and, and they're very sharp and. And so, yes, we've had some young men, you know, that, that physically, I mean, you can see the, and, 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 you know, the muddied pants, and, and of course, we offer them a change of clothes because of the donations, and, but some that actually, you know, we had to take to the hospital. Um, and, and so, yes, we see the, 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 both the physical, but also the, you know, the, the mental, uh, the mental anguish, what, you know, what they've gone through. I remember a couple... Uh, that were kidnapped, and, and and you know, of course, you know, you you go through your mind that okay, are they telling you? And then when when the young man shows you his bag when he pulls his shirt, and and how he was hit with a two by four, uh, you know, and you can see the bruises. What there's no doubt in your mind uh, of what they've gone through, and 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 you feel so impotent. You feel like like my God, how is it possible that 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 you know that humans can you know, can do this to other, you know, human beings. And so I, I can tell you that there in the gym, you, you can see the human mystery, but you can also see the face of God. You know, you can also see the, the hope in them and the faith. Uh, a lot of them may, may not be Catholic, but, uh, but they, they join in prayer you know, with Father Nick and I when we pray, you know, the Our Father or, or the Hail Mary. Because we, we always take time to, to give thanks to God for, for the meal that we're about to share. Uh, and they're very grateful. You mentioned how some of these people might not even be Catholic. And I'm reminded of this, uh, this phrase that I heard from someone, I don't, I don't even know where, but someone at a distant Catholic charities mm-hmm. uh, who ministers to migrants saying, we don't minister to the migrants because they're Catholic, but because we're Catholic. Right, exactly. And, and this, this yeah. sense of, yeah. of a duty and that's something that is kind of coming through when I'm, when I'm hearing with, especially when it comes to the suffering of these people, these people who are lacerated and Christ was also lacerated. You talk about the, 
the puncture wounds from the barbed wire, and I couldn't help but just kind of think of mm -hmm. stigmata and just these right. these images of yeah. an innocent person sure. suffering. Yeah. One question that I was thinking about was, is there someone, you, you do such a, amazing work, you're sharing all these great stories, you have this life of service and ministry in the church. Is there someone who inspires you, maybe a saint or a life personal example, or yeah. someone who you, you, you turn to and you think of and you've, you've felt moved and inspired by in your life of ministry? Well, you know, uh, I told you about my, my grandma and my mom. I think that the two people that that keep me grounded, uh, of course, other than my son, is my wife, Carmen, and my daughter, Danielle. My daughter, Danielle, is 30, and uh, she was born pre very premature, and uh, uh, that caused blindness uh, because of the oxygen and all that. But uh, uh, she's the one that keeps me real. She's the one that keeps me grounded in the sense that it's a daily struggle for her. It's the world against her um, because of, of many reasons, but she does everything in Braille. She's trying to finish school here in Brownsville, but you know sometimes the resources may be limited because she does everything in Braille. Uh, but she reads with my wife, uh, Carmen, at Sacred Heart. Uh, they're both lectors. They're, they like, they're like a team. But, but she keeps me real uh, because uh, of, of the struggle and, and then, of course, my wife, who is uh, such a giving individual. Uh, right now, she, she's a full-time teacher, uh, but she takes care of my daughter in the sense that, you know, goes with her to the university, but also has her 92-year-old uh, mom. They, they, they keep me grounded, and, and we enjoy the moments that we're together. Uh, but the two people uh, that, that inspire me, that move me, are both... Uh, Carmen and, and, and my daughter, especially Danielle. Um, you know, I often think, and sometimes it's painful that, you know, well, you know, uh, she will never see, you know, a beautiful bright moon or, or the bright sun or what have you. But, but you know, she can see what, what I don't see uh, many times. Like, you know, she's told me that the, the Blessed Mother has appeared to her or, or the Lord Jesus has appeared to her and... and and so I find that very, very moving and inspiring, you know, in, in many ways that, that talk about, you know, uh, and, and even in, in her lowest moments, because, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, she experiences like depression or, or what have you, but, but we, it gives us great joy when, when, when she talks to us about, you know, her being hopeful. And, and she wants to be a Braille teacher. She wants to be a special ed teacher, you know, so it's... Uh, it's, it, she keeps me grounded. She keeps me real about, about you know, life and, and my faith in the Lord because if anything, I see her faith in the Lord. We talk about grounding and so much of what it means when someone grounds us is someone kind of redirects or sure. broadens our perspective sure. to kind of put it in everything yeah. into kind of its, its right place in some ways. And I just, I'm, I'm just quite touched by the uh, your stories of your daughter. To me, it's with, like she keeps my feet on the ground. Yeah. You know, it's... Yeah. And, and the way that the Virgin Mary, the way that Jesus 
be able just to meet her where she is mm-hmm. and not see her her physical blindness sure. as an obstacle to exactly. that real encounter yeah. with God. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's something truly beautiful. And it makes me wonder, you know, all these these images that we have of heaven, mm-hmm. of um, the way God will meet us and the way, what it's like when we meet God in that mm-hmm. special, unique way. And there's so many different visions of heaven and images that, that are evocative of heaven. I wonder, is there a particular image or description of heaven mm-hmm. that really moves you mm-hmm. and attracts you? You know, um, we just started a course on, on uh, the spiritual life and uh, spiritual direction. We're, we're using the book by uh, Ralph uh, Martin uh, called The Fulfillment of All Desire. And it speaks of the stages of the spiritual, the interior life, you know, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive. But, but the fourth one is the beatific vision. And I was reminding, because we have class on Saturdays uh, at the Institute in San Juan, and uh, it's so neat, you know, what you're asking, because, of course, the teaching, when you look at beatific vision, I forgot the number right now, the reference number in the catechism, is, uh, is that it's, beatific vision is the hope of very Christian. But specifically is that the hope that we will close our eyes here on earth when we die and we will open them in heaven, and we will see the face of God. And so I often, you know, uh, uh, when I talk to my daughters that, you know, my, my hope, my, my, my yearning and my desire for my daughter is that she will open when she dies here, and, and she opens her eyes, that, that she will actually be able to physically see the face of God. Uh, th- that's my hope, you know, deep down. That's a beautiful image uh, and sp- speaks so much to your faith, to your daughter's faith and your love of your daughter. I find that so moving. Deacon Suniga, it's been such a pleasure having you with us on this episode, uh, hearing you shared stories and talk about your ministry just keeps me thinking, you know, you know, we, we help out some at San Felipe de Jesus Parish, and we don't have any permanent deacons, so I don't know who I need to call or yeah. what requests I need to put in to get, maybe, could you get transferred over to San Felipe? <laughs> but no, truly, we are grateful for the great ministry you're doing at the cathedral, including with the Respite Center there. Uh, and yeah, we look forward to being in touch and continuing to working with you going forward. Great. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Well, that wraps up our episode for this week. We're grateful to Deacon Luis Zuniga for joining us. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. You can visit our website at delcamino.org. If you're curious about Jesuit life or know someone who is, visit beajesuit.org to learn more about a religious vocation to the Society of Jesus. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. We'll see you next time on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Que Dios os bendiga.